everybody. June snuck in a fifth Wednesday this year. So we are bringing you this bonus episode of a wonderful conversation we had with Dr. Aldo Chimino of Kent State University. If you recall in episode 85, Dr. Scott and I discussed hazing as a phenomenon and we cited much of Dr. Chimino's work. So it was wonderful to take this opportunity to dig deeper with him. He took us inside a fraternity where he had conducted an ethnographic study of culture and ritual from an anthropologist's point of view, and then discussed his views on the reasons why this particular phenomenon continues to be a part of American culture. And if you have not listened to one of our live streams before or are not a Patreon member, this will give you a little taste of what we do each month. So we hope you enjoy this bonus episode and we will see you next month with all new content. Enjoy. Today, I'm Dr. Shiloh, and I'm here with my wonderful co-host, person I could not do this without, Dr. Scott. Hello. Hey, you could probably do it without me. You could just have like a puppet, just Ooh. like an annoying sock puppet. A sock, a sock monkey puppet? Yes, a sock monkey puppet. That's okay. Right. If I ever need a stand-in, we'll definitely just have to go that route. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> you know Perfect. what we should do? I really need to start up doing the Scott Takes again. And like do video with like sock puppet mouthing it. How funny would that be? Oh, don't. Oh, now you gave the idea away. That's actually really great. We are going to have a great conversation with Aldo Samino. Aldo Samino is an assistant professor. Hello. Of anthropology at Kent State University. He is among the foremost experts on hazing and has conducted original experimental and ethnographic work on the phenomenon, including field work with a hazing fraternity. Cannot wait to hear more about that. But his focus is on furthering a scientific understanding of the motivation to haze and the impact of hazing on hazies. Welcome, sir. How are you? I'm, I'm good. I'm happy to, to be here. Can you hear me all right? Is everything fine? We can hear you just fine. Yes. All right. Good. Yeah. Yeah. So, I'm, Sicilian? Camino? So I'm, I'm not Sicilian. Okay. I, my, my Italian heritage though is, is certainly firm. I, sure. I actually forget though, the specific, very small regional location from which my Italian side descends from. I always forget the name of it, but got it. The, no uh, I, I should note though, that, that my last name is pronounced Chimino, like Al Pacino. Got it. Chimino. Thank you for the correction. Thank you for being here. We so appreciate you reaching out after the episode aired. How did you stumble upon our little show? I was doing a Google search for something hazing related. I'm always looking for this, that, and the other thing. And I came upon that particular episode that you had done. And I was like, awesome. Let, let's see what's, what's going on here. Be, because obviously I'm, I'm interested in how the media treats hazing, mm-hmm. how sort of podcasts now are treating hazing now that podcasts are part of the media. And I was, uh, I was really impressed. I really appreciated that you took the time to address the phenomenon from so many different angles that you clearly had done a lot of reading, uh, you know, you you named studies that are, are common citations in the literature. I think it was just up up and down. I thought it was really good, and I, I wish that uh, more media depictions of hazing were that careful and that thorough. Well, thank you. We certainly appreciate that. You know, I I posted a review on our social media today that we just received on the show, and it was from a clinical psychologist. And I think Scott and I are always very humbled when professionals in the, the, the field of psychology or adjacent have positive things to say about the show, because we put (laughs) in between our day jobs, we put these episodes together every couple of weeks and feel like there's never enough time to do enough research and really feel like we're just scratching the surface. However, we still want to make it listenable for people and that's kind of what we aim for. So how long ago did you leave Santa Barbara for Ohio? Uh, so I, well, <laughs> it's Because <a> <laughs> you've complex. changed schools on us since we yeah, decided to. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a little complex. I, I was temporarily in Seattle for a while, and then I moved from Seattle as of August. I accepted a position at Kent State University. 
So prior to that, I was a lecturer at UC Santa Barbara, but now I've moved on to the tenure track so that I'm, I'm now in a, a much more traditional and formal academic position. Okay, that's great. Congratulations. Thank you. So would it be correct to label you as an anthropologist? Yes. Or, okay. Okay. Fantastic. So technically, I was hired as a cultural anthropologist, mm-hmm. um, though most mainline cultural anthropologists might disavow me. <laughs> that means you're our people. We love that even more. Yes. That makes you more fascinating. <laughs> they, uh, uh, you know, I I don't use uh, methods that are um, popular right now in mainline cultural anthropology, nor mm. popular theoretical frameworks uh, that they would prefer. Mm. So it's 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 not that I'm persona non grata or or some or they you know hiss at me or something. It's it's just I'm <laughs> I'm operating. Uh, using tools that they would prefer not to use. Got it. Got it. Cultural anthropology was one of my most favorite courses I took in undergrad. And I had a moment there of like, uh, uh, do I want to change and go this way? And at Cal State Fullerton, we had one of the foremost experts in forensic anthropology out of our school. And she would take us criminal justice students out to go search for dead bodies in the desert where they had found body parts like the summer before. And I just thought it was the best thing ever. And, um, you know, she had a bunch of students that were super interested in stumbling upon something like that. So she had a lot of free labor, but fantastic topic and field. And we actually have a lot of people that write us saying that they're studying cultural anthropology and anthropology in general. So I think there's a lot of crossover here. Um, Can you tell us a bit about how you came to be interested in studying hazing? Yeah, so my interest in hazing really uh, goes all the way back to being an undergrad in college. Um, I I really wanted to, I knew at that point that I wanted to go to grad school. I knew that I wanted to be in the behavioral sciences and uh, I wanted to, in particular, specialize in the evolutionary behavioral sciences like really searching for ultimate explanations for uh, particular human behaviors. And one of the topics that I started to look into as, as an undergrad, because uh, I was pursuing an honors thesis, was cognitive dissonance. And so I, I was trying to think, like, might there be interesting evolutionary reasons why people experience dissonance? Is this sort of a byproduct of the way that our brain works? Or is it something that is uh, operating as designed? And can you Um, just for, I mean, most of, we have some very educated listeners, but can you give a brief one-liner on cognitive dissonance for our audience? Sure. So as traditionally conceived, cognitive dissonance is the state of discomfort that occurs from holding two cognitions that are inconsistent simultaneously. And so the idea is that because holding two cognitions that are inconsistent simultaneously creates discomfort, you are modified, or excuse me, you are motivated to modify at least one of those so that they are now consistent. Um, so if, you know, the, the classic experiment that you guys talked about uh, with respect to hazing had to do with effort justification as cognitive dissonance, right? The idea that when you go through something, uh, it is inconsistent with the fact that you have expended a bunch of effort to recognize that that thing wasn't worth it. So you, you, I did all this stuff. I, you know, it's, it wasn't worth it. These cognitions feel inconsistent. That creates dissonance. Now you have to modify this. Maybe it was worth it. It was totally, it's wonderful. I was reading about dissonance and it, it was interesting, but it wasn't like, you know, really grabbing me. But then I came across this really famous experiment in, uh, from 1959. Uh, by Aronson and Mills, which is the effect of a a severe initiation on liking for a group. And uh, this is an experiment that you talked about, I believe, in your podcast. Uh, It's very famous, and I'll just like run through the basics of it. So basically, Aronson and Mills had subjects in their experiment. Uh, they, They told them that they were going to join a discussion group, but that in order to join this discussion group, um, they had to go through an initiation. And some of them were exposed to an unpleasant initiation, and some of them either had a mild initiation or no initiation at all. And the unpleasant version 
uh, required people to read erotica out loud to their the group that they were joining or thought that they were joining, um, as well as a bunch of, you know, bad words. You know, they had to say uh, all sorts of genitalia words, but, you know, in the worst possible way, right? Uh, so keep in mind, this is 1959. Uh, so people were a little, little more straight-laced, right? Um, in, in, in terms of uh, this being a severe initiation. Um, and all of their subjects were women. This isn't commented on much, but I think it deserves more attention because it's a really strange aspect of their experiment. You know, they they want to talk about initiations in the world, um, but, you know, some of the most severe and intense initiations are done by men. Why are all of their subjects women? In any case, um, they did it with all women and they had them join a group where after they, they go through this, this process, the group itself turns out to be incredibly lame, just the lamest possible group. But like they, Aronson and Mills talk about how they just try to make it so unbelievably boring. And like every, <laughs> everyone in the discussion group is hemming and hawing and no one is saying anything that makes sense. And they just like really worked hard to make it terrible. Uh, and, and then afterwards, they had their, their subjects fill out, you know, surveys saying, oh, what do you think of the group members? How much do you like the, the group? And so on. And it turns out that the participants who went through the unpleasant induction reported liking the group more. So Aronson and Mills said, this is evidence that people justify their effort, that, that this, is, this is the manifestation of cognitive dissonance. They, they went through something that was unpleasant, they experienced the, the thing, they saw that it sucked, and they were motivated to justify their effort. So I, I read that and I was like, well, mm-hmm. I mean, here's the problem with this experiment. In addition to like whatever sort of methodological critiques one might have, it's People don't normally join the worst possible group. So this is, this is done to, uh, I, I understand why they, they did it because they wanna create as large of a contrast as possible. But the problem is, is that if a group is really high quality, then, and you go through something challenging for it, there's not much dissonance there. Right. Um, so as an, as an explanation for why real world hazing exists, it, it feels like it's missing a few steps. Because it didn't really thing, mimic re- real world yeah, uh, it's, experiences it's, or scenarios. The other thing is, to keep in mind is that when people have been theorizing a, about hazing and, and discussing it and writing about it, and this is something you acknowledge in your podcast, this you know goes back a century, right? What they've mainly been focusing on are really intense hazing ordeals. Like they are, they're not theorizing about mild annoyances that last for five minutes and then end. They're really, they're really interested in why are these extreme, you know, lengthy hazing practices happening? And that's exactly what Aronson and Mills didn't do. Like, you know, no one who is working on theories of hazing is working on a theory of mild vexatiousness, Yeah. right? Uh, so, so in, in, in that sense, it's, it's at the very bottom of hazing severity and is potentially misleading. It's like, you know, if you wanted to study the psychological effects of being physically assaulted, you wouldn't poke people with toothpicks and then measure it, right? Like you, you, you've, you've got an external validity problem. Um, so I, that's, that's one of the, the, the issues and the, the, the theory it itself is weird because if, if people are motivated to create cognitive dissonance because it has this knock-on positive effect on how people think about the group, that doesn't predict that hazing should end, really. It, it predicts, in, in fact, that hazing might be cyclical, that people might go through hazing like once a year, right? Because it's re-upping your commitment to the group and it's making you feel better. Why should hazing have this hard cutoff? Mm -hmm. Um, So there are regular components of the way that hazing is conducted 
that are not directly predicted by this theory. It's just sort of like, well, sometimes people overjustify what they go through, which while generally true in some cases, doesn't directly predict the features of hazing that we see. So I, I was motivated by this and, and other things to, to try to get a better understanding of hazing. And the other thing that I realized is that despite the fact that we have a century of work on hazing, much of that work is descriptive and qualitative, meaning that in terms of the science of hazing, we have maybe you know, a couple dozen studies at most. And if, if you think about a lot of other human phenomena that are of broad interest to social psychologists or sociologists, we have hundreds if not thousands of studies on all manner of things that are not hazing. So hazing has this tiny, tiny, tiny little trickle of studies, which means that a lot of what we think we know about hazing is not well empirically established. It's, it's a collection of observations intuitions and generalizations from small studies that are themselves in question. Mm -hmm. Sure. So I'm sure that was hugely motivating in how do I move this field of research forward and in what ways? So is that what really wanted you to look at doing ethnographic studies, talking to people face-to-face, -face, really getting embedded in the culture? Well, I mean, in, in fact, it immediately want, it made me want to do experiments, for, first mm, off. Like sure, it, it, sure. it made me realize that we don't know what's motivating hazing at all. Like when I started doing this, we had no experiments on what would differentially motivate people to haze, at least in a laboratory environment, right? And un, unlike, you know, the, the sort of like the trying to measure the effect of these sort of puny hazing ordeals on people, at least in a vignette experiment, you can get people's intuitions about things. Like, how do I feel about newcomers, right? If I, if I imagine that I'm in a particular group, if I'm, you know, reading some description of a group and it says, imagine you're a member, right? Because this, this is how my experiments often work. You have people come in, they sit down, they, they read a description of a fictional group and they're, they're told, hey, imagine you're a member of the, this group and it describes what the group does and how they operate and so on. And often I'll modify aspects of that group systematically. So one group of subjects reads about one group or one modified group, another group reads about another aspect of it. And in both cases, subjects are asked like, hey, you can make any kind of initiation you want. You know, like it, it could be really mild, it could be really severe, but this group has decided to have an initiation. They haven't had one before. Um, and what I find is that people who imagine themselves in high quality groups, these like, you know, high prestige groups, um, they start creating severe initiations. They, they start demanding that newcomers undergo unpleasant things. So I, I was really interested in like, what can I systematically vary in people's social perception, which will increase or decrease their desire to haze? And that's, that's what I wanted to tackle first. But I also knew that hazing practices in the real world are intensely secretive. And oftentimes, like the, the mass of information that we have about hazing is from very old ethnographies not from modern hazing practices, which are done uh, with a high degree of secrecy, like fraternities and sororities. And when we hear about fraternity and sorority hazing, it's usually decontextualized. So we'll hear about a particular ordeal. So in your podcast, uh, you, you talked about the uh, sorority hazing that involved, you know, sitting on a uh, what was it? A washing, washing machine. machine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it would sort of jiggle the fat in their body, and they would circle the, the things that that jiggle. Right. Right. Now that that's a description of of an ordeal, but it's also decontextualized. Like what actually led to that moment? And I wanted to understand how fraternities, in particular, were structuring their hazing. What did it actually look like? Um, mm. So. I, I managed to, so first of all, if, if you want to do this, this work, fraternities are not going to let you watch them. Uh, <laughs> no kidding. Really? Yeah. What a surprise. So, 
What is uh, it? So there, there were there were people who, who told me that was like, oh, you should pledge of fraternity without telling oh, them that you're a researcher. But but that is actually an ethical violation sure. uh, by like IRB protocol. So we, we can't do that. <laughs> so so I went around trying to talk to fraternity members to convince them that against their better judgment, they should just let me watch them do their incredibly secretive things that are potentially illegal. And needless to say, that was not received well. Like, it's as, such a good a, idea, yeah. though. <laughs> they should have let you. It's for science. Come on. <laughs> but I, I lucked out. And, and I, I lucked out in that there, there was a, a particular member of a particular fraternity that I call Alpha. It's a pseudonym, obviously, that decided that they trusted me. And this, there was one member of Alpha who had had a little bit of exposure to me in a different context. And I think that predisposed him to think, you know what, maybe Aldo, maybe Aldo is legit. So I was able to convince them to allow me to see at least this initial part of their induction process, because they have this 10-week induction where, you know, once you enter this induction process as, as a pledge, it takes maybe eight to 10 weeks to get through it all. Mm. And what, what seemed to be the case is that they were going to allow me to observe the first couple weeks of this process. And in, in exchange, I would pay them money, like a, a, a monthly stipend. That would be a donation to their chapter. This is how anthropology always works, by the way. Like when, when you hear about anthropologists hanging out with some culture or subculture, it's not for free. There's always a quid pro quo. That Got it. Some people living in the forest are not going to be like, yes, please, random white guy, hang out right. with us. Right. This is really sure. good to know. I would, that would never have occurred to me. Thank yeah, just things um, you don't think about, but makes sense. So, so yeah, so so I'm I'm paying them to deal with my presence because I'm in a, I'm there hanging out in, in the corner, being like, "What does that mean?" He just said a term I don't understand, right? So, so I got them to to at least initially trust me, and then after a couple of weeks, they were like, "All right, Aldo, you know, you have to stop. Like, the hazing is about to kick into gear." And <laughs> yeah. like things are about to get real, right? Uh, right. And so we're going to cut you off. And I, I made my, my case, though. I, I was like, so, you know, you have the, these pledges. You know, you have these actives. So actives are present fraternity members versus all alumni, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm actually the only one in this room that has signed a contract saying that I will never reveal who you are or what you've done. In, in, uh, in relation to that. So like, I am the most trustworthy person here, you know, because any pledge could de-pledge at any moment and then go on Facebook and be like, oh, by the way, I'm being hazed, right? Yeah, true, right. You, whereas, you had a contract. Am, yeah, whereas I'm contractually and ethically bound not to, because when, when you're an anthropologist and you do field work, your first duty is to the protection of the population that you're studying. Sure. So they were like, all right. So after that little monologue, they were like, all right, let's, let's give this a shot. And, and I got to, to watch as things kicked into high gear. And the way that Alpha did their hazing is super interesting. So first, you need to understand like the, the substrate of it. Like, so what, what exactly was hazing for them? It was a lot of calisthenics. It's like push-ups, sit-ups, high knees. Sometimes they would go on long runs. There's certain exercises that I'm actually forbidden from specifically identifying. It's not because they're like sexual abuse or, or something, but they just have particular ritual forms attached to them that could identify the group. Got it. They so, would have retained their creative license for those. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they, they do these really intense exercises. Now, they also have you eat really unpleasant, like nauseous food substances. I'm also forbidden from identifying, but needless to say, think about like foods that you could eat in mass that would cause you to feel profound nausea and, and vomit. So they, they use that. There are also like a lot of particular ordeals that are, that are only done once. 
and, and that might show up or, or might not show up depending on who in the uh, fraternity is in charge of running the, the whole process for that pledge class. But that's the basic substrate is mostly it's intense calisthenics and or ingesting nauseating substances. And so, may I ask, did, did you find that this could be changed up by new active members each year when they did pledging? Or was this, you know, some super secret alpha Bible that had been there for decades that they're doing the same thing over and over again? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So my anthropologists normally have a primary informant. That is someone that they talk to the most, that they have a good rapport with. Because remember, like groups of people are like anyone, not, not everyone has the same opinion of the anthropologist, right? Some people are like, F that guy. I'm not interested in talking to him. And some people are like, oh, the anthropologist, what's going on? Right. So my primary informant tells me that Alpha has no official written version of their process. It's orally transmitted. That's probably that's probably for, for the better, given what they're, they're doing. They don't want to write, write it down. But there is what's called a pledge book. And the pledge book is given to every pledge, and it contains information that every pledge has to know. Things like uh, past presidents, the other chapters that exist in the fraternity, the fraternity creed, you know, fraternity songs, certain mottos and slogans. These are things that pledges must learn. Now, do, does that answer your, your question? Yeah, yeah. It sounds like there's some tradition to it. It's not written. Um, yeah. But like you said, there are some rituals or acts that could be brought up any given year, but not necessarily. Yeah. It's also yeah, there's some wiggle room having, there. Having worked in state correctional facilities, that is uh, when someone's being jumped into a gang on the prison yard, you have a you have an encyclopedic Bible that you have to memorize, which is about all the rules. You have to be able to repeat it back. Part of it is knowing kill versus injure points. Like, but they have to. It's like, but th at that point, it's a matter of life or death. They have to have that memorized within a certain amount of time. Yeah. So er earlier, I was talking about like the, the 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 difference between talking about an ordeal and talking about its context, mm. right? So. So I was, I was talking about, all right, those are the ordeals, but what's the context? Because in principle, the way that hazing could be set up is, you know, pledges walk into a room and the actives go, so today you're doing these things, do them, right? They, they could just be like, you're going to do this many push-ups, you're going to eat all this weird crap, and then you'll be done once that's all done, and then you go home, right? Because remember, like, there are multiple different hazing events, and they happen at multiple times in the week. But that's not what happens. Instead, what happens is the pledges are routinely tested on their knowledge of the pledge book. So they, they come in and they go, all right, you need to tell me who was the second president of this particular chapter. You need to recite the creed. You need to do these things, right? And if, if a pledge messes it up, now you're being hazed. However, <laughs> this, now you might be thinking, all right, but if they do well, wouldn't that mean they're not being hazed? Like, yeah. wouldn't that be an out? Like if, if you're really, if you're really book smart, you learn your, your pledge book, what's, what's the issue? Bam, you're not being hazed. Well, I, I wrote a paper on this. Uh, it's called planned failure. And the, uh, what the, the actives do is they set it up so it's nearly impossible to succeed. So first, they, they have all these different standards about how you recite the answers. You have to say it loudly and clearly. You can't mispronounce any word. And depending on how far you are into the hazing process, that is how many weeks have, have, have happened, you need to address actives with honorifics like Mr. Mm -hmm. If you don't use the right honorific, then the answer is wrong. Also, you might be sleep deprived if you're a pledge, you might be in the throes of pain, uh, you might be nauseated. So even if you know the answer to a question, it might not be quickly forthcoming. You know, you're, you're sort of out of sorts and you're trying to generate the answer and they're like, come on, where's the answer? Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? And then you don't get it. And then suddenly you're being hazed more. 
So planned failure is the major fulcrum for hazing. It is failure that is the ordeal context. Like it is almost everything that pledges went through it, at least in alpha, had a kind of failure framing to it. And what I was able to, to do is find other uh, historical scholarly and non-scholarly accounts of paternity hazing, and I was able to find indications of planned failure uh, throughout the United States. So this does not appear to be something that is just unique to Alpha. Uh, it appears to be like part of the heartbeat of fraternity inductions. Well, it makes sense that they would sort of um, have this very concrete mission that you think you have to do memorizing all of this information yet we're going to test you and make it incredibly subjective by it's not loud enough it wasn't said the right way um, all of those things so no matter what every there's not going to be the one guy that's doing perfect and gets to slide by so, <laughs> sounds like the police yeah. academy when i went through that <laughs> oh man wow great stuff uh, go ahead please uh, so, so yeah, so I, I studied alpha for, you know, maybe 22 months, like approximately a, a year. And that's how I generated that paper on planned failure. And I, I tried to be like, hey, you know, all these descriptions that we have of, of fraternity hazing are somewhat non-systematic and we need to start thinking about the context for ordeals. And hey, I, I think I've identified this uh, context that can be applied across a number of different fraternity hazing processes. So it's a it's a descriptive qualitative paper, but it's in the service of a, a truer foundation for scientific work on, on hazing. Mm -hmm. um, and there's there's one other aspect to my fieldwork. So there's one other fraternity that I uh, convinced to let me study them. And now this this fraternity I'll call beta uh, they were not cool with having me present. They, they, they didn't want me to see anything, but I wanted to understand how the hazing process was impacting their pledges. So um, I was able to build a rapport with a particular member of Beta, and through him and his discussions with other members of Beta and my further discussions with them, I convinced them uh, to allow me to do a longitudinal survey study where I had, at multiple time points, I had pledges in their hazing process fill out psychological surveys of like, how, how are you feeling at various points? So I had them fill out measures of um, social cohesion, like how, how good do they feel about their fellow pledges? How do they feel about the actives? How do they feel about the chapter? Um, and I also had measures of uh, how tough and unpleasant the process was and separately measures of how fun and enjoyable it is because even in fraternity hazing processes, there can be these interludes where like, all right, um, you know, you've, you've gone through these two hazing ordeals that happened on different days during the week, but on Friday, the fraternity is holding a party and the pledges are allowed to attend. So you have this interlude of like, oh, we're having fun. You know, we, we can't wear letters and we got to potentially clean up after everyone, right? But we, we can at least attend this, this party and have fun. And also some activities that fraternities do are uh, just straightforward. Like they're, they're not hazing. You're, you're just, you know, hey, let me teach you about the history of this chapter, right? So, so yeah, I, I did a... a you know, I guess this was, again, approximately two years worth of data gathering um, with about 126 pledges in total. Wow. And uh, I've got a paper under review where uh, myself and my co-author do a big uh, stat analysis mm -hmm. on trying to see to what extent our measure of, of hazing or just fun stuff actually predicts how people feel about the, the group? Like, does hazing actually generate solidarity? Because that's one of the right. most common theories, right? So with that two and a half years of data collection, was that, what, two classes of new, um, I wanted to was, say inductees. <laughs> 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 this is not the, the Grammy Museum. 
Yes, into pledges. So did you get through six, two classes? Six of them. Six. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow, that's great. So that's that's going to be a wonderful paper to to look at. I mean, being able to take surveys and gather data in that way and kind of looking at the experience that you got to at least live through with them for a number of weeks is going to be really interesting to look at those, even if they're totally different fraternities. So uh, I was telling you earlier that it, after our episode aired, we got some feedback from some worried parents, of course, even those of us who have children who are small and <laughs> aren't worried about this yet. But now it's like, oof, I know more about this than I probably want to. <laughs> Tell me your thoughts on sort of current anti-hazing approaches, whether it's universities or sort of other entities out there, because I know you know, military and some of those other groups are also trying to get into that. But I know most of your work is with fraternities. Yeah, though I, I am in, interested in hazing globally. Like I'm, uh, yeah. I, I specialize in fraternities because they're right there. Sure, sure. <laughs> uh, yeah. But, uh, but, but yeah, I, I'm interested in hazing as a human phenomenon. Uh, so, all right. Uh, I wrote a paper in 2020 called Embrace and Reform, uh, which deals with that very question. Uh, which is, you know, what's going on with anti-hazing advocacy and why has it been such a failure? Because one of the things to keep in mind is, is that uh, anti-hazing advocates have been at this for decades now, and in particular, collegiate hazing. That, that's really what, what I want to focus on because that's where most of their attention has been directed, and that's also where we've seen the most hazing deaths. It's really collegiate hazing, and in particular, fraternities. Um, so anti-hazing advocates have been, you know, running various anti-hazing uh, programs. They'll, you know, bring in anti-hazing speakers who will give, you know, inspiring speeches of, about hazing. Um, they will have uh, various, you know, anti-hazing week or whatever, where everyone wears pins like these hands right. don't haze and stuff, right? Yeah. Like they, they, they try, all, yeah, they try all kinds of messages and, um, it hasn't really, it doesn't appear to have done anything. Um, and the reason why we think it hasn't done much of anything is because large scale survey studies done on collegiate hazing suggest that it is incredibly common still. And still very, very common inside fraternities and sororities. I, I think the uh, 2008 paper by Allen, which was mentioned in, in your podcast, uh, had it at something like 75% of uh, Greek letter uh, members had been hazed. So, you know, if, if that's success, I would hate to see failure, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, sure. like this is, sure. this is not a, a sign of a, of a healthy set of uh, prevention programs that are working. Um, but they, it hasn't seemed to have stopped and made people think like, well, maybe our, our abstinence only program for hazing is actually not feasible, at, at least at a, at a collegiate level. I, I, I want to be careful about the way that I talk about this because embrace and reform is really about fraternity and sorority hazing. And there are specific properties of these groups because they are private social clubs that insulate them against certain types of criticisms. So for example, if we were to talk about hazing in the workplace, which would in include the, the military, by, by the way. We are, we are talking about people that are, uh, that are selling their, their labor and trying to survive. They're, mm -hmm. they're not necessarily there just because they want to chill with a bunch of cool friends. Right. right? This is, and, and if we're talking about the United States in particular, they may depend on their employer for healthcare itself, you know, putting food on the, the table. The reason why we have all these you know, labor laws and at least some protections for workers is because we understand that that sphere of activity needs to be protected due to its necessity. And, and if, even if people were super eager to engage in hazing in workplace environments where it does exist, by the way, I, I would be formally against it regardless of how carefully it was done. Mm -hmm. So I just want to be clear that we, I, we are now focusing in on fraternity and sorority hazing. Yep. All right. So we have these private social clubs that are absolutely determined to haze. 
it doesn't matter if hazing is illegal, doesn't matter if it's against the university policy, doesn't matter if it's against their national organization, doesn't matter if people tell them it's evil and bad and wrong, they're going to keep doing it. So what do we do about that? Well, um, if, if we take a harm reduction approach, the same kind that has been uh, done with things like the, the drug war, right, where we, we try to think about like, well, all right, is there a way that people could do this that would tamp down on a lot of the issues that we're looking at? And if we think about the variety of different hazing ordeals that, that exist out there, they vary greatly in their safety margins. Like if you want people to do push-ups, it, that has really good safety margins. Like mm -hmm. however un unpleasant it is, it's not that it's impossible to kill someone with, with push-ups, it's just really hard unless yep. you have extreme extenuating circumstances, right? So that's a hazing ordeal that is much safer than we're going to get you so drunk that you're on the edge of alcohol poisoning, right? One of the, the, the things you mentioned in your podcast is that when we do see hazing deaths, alcohol is almost always involved. Sometimes it is the direct causal cause of death. They're, they're just, you know, pledges are made to drink so much, they just die of alcohol poisoning. So if you think about it this way, then there are things that fraternities and sororities are doing which have good safety margins, and there are things that they are doing which have terrible safety margins. And if you can convince them to switch out the terrible safety margin ones for the good safety margin ones, you are going to reduce the overall harm of hazing. And that is what I think we ought to investigate. Now, when I say investigate, I don't mean implement just because I said so. I mean, mm -hmm. actually do pilot studies with groups where we are doing things like I did with beta, where we're taking surveys, we're evaluating the, the safety, we're, we're evaluating, you know, we're using standard psychological batteries. Um, and also, you know, along with this, I would have uh, fraternity and sorority members have mandated Red Cross first aid training. So not only like able that. to like, not only able to like bandage a wound, but also like, oh, they can spot heat stroke, right? Mm -hmm. Like they can, they can spot hypoglycemia. They go, because if people are going to do a lot of exercises, because that's where the, we have the higher safety margins, then, you're, then you might have people that are getting really tired that need water. You might have people that are, are diabetic. You need that first aid background. So if we get, hey, you know, and, and these organizations have plenty of money to, to send these people to basic first aid uh, training. So first aid training, you know, actually doing safer things. And most importantly, here's the, the final component, informed consent. Ooh. So up front, they need to tell them, hey, this is really going to be a challenging process. Here are some of the things that we're going to, to require of you. It's going to require calisthenics. It's going to be really intense. It's going to be like potentially a little bit like boot camp. You might get yelled at. Uh, you're going to have to clean things. You're going you're gonna to do unskilled labor. Your, your life will never be in danger, but you have to understand that this is not easy. And before you do this, you have to understand that you're consenting to this, right? And we allow people in the United States to consent to jump out of planes, right? As long as they are, they're adults and, and they understand what they are doing, we allow them. And so that would need to be upfront before the actual like pressured situation starts, right? Because hazing can be involve a lot of pressure. So what so, are you thinking the informed consent will do? Will it weed out people that are like, Ugh, okay, now that I know that this is part of it, I'm out? Or does it make the fraternity more responsible to really hold to some of these other measures too? Or both. something else? Okay. Both. Yeah, I mean, I mean an informed consent is, is a critical component just because hazing is a stressor. Hazing is really mm -hmm. in, intense. You know, humans can decide to expose one another as long as they're consenting to all manner of bizarre activities. I mean, people in the BDSM community do, right? Sure, and, sure. And, and most people, at least in the United States, have no problem with that as long as they're consenting, right? Right. So... I, I, these are a, a, adults that, that we're talking about, however young, and our society has decided that these, that 18-year-olds can decide to, to go to war and die, 
And so it, it would be weird if they have the ability to go to war to die, but and they don't have the ability to consent to do push-ups and housework. Like, mm-hmm. why not? Like, as, as long as they're not pressured into it, as long as they're genuinely told, hey, this is, this is the challenge, this is what you're going to go through, why not? I love that you use that particular example, Aldo, because uh, in your wonderful paper that you provided to us, and thank you for that, you give the example of how there's just this almost direct dovetail or parallel to what uh, military training is like with the calisthenics. I mean, that was like, that's a perfect example of, of uh, what is required of them just in a completely different context. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and and note that no one, at least that I can see is terrified that we're giving uh, people in boot camp PTSD. Yes. Right. Right. Because they're signing up for it. Right. Right. There's, I mean, they're, they're signing up for it. And we also trust that there's been some basic level of, of training in the people that are they're conducting it, right? Which is why right. I want to get some first aid training in there. Um, but uh, you know, it's it's people. It seems like there are ways in which people are selectively concerned about things. Like we have talked our our way into a corner about hazing by focusing on the worst possible examples of it. When there are there are instances of it that are just that are bad, but are just not that bad. And be, if if we know that the people can operate in that realm, then we can push them just a little bit further and potentially make things safer. And one of the, the things that I found, and this is only subjective, like I, this is qualitative evidence, this is non-systematic, but in my observations and discussions with fraternity members, they often treat hazing ordeals as fungible. That is, one hazing ordeal could in principle be exchanged for another. So, you know, if if there were, for example, a member who was allergic to the food that you were trying to feed him as part of the ordeal, they wouldn't be like, well, okay, I guess you can't join our fraternity. They'd be like, oh, well, all right, why don't you do this many push-ups then? Hmm. So, so they're exchanging the dysphoria associated with that with the dysphoria associated with something else. And if, they, if these ordeals are fungible in that way, then that suggests that this might, again, be a pathway towards harm reduction. Well, that's interesting because that's a little similar to the example I gave in the episode where my boyfriend at the time was a criminal justice major. And so then they said, okay, you don't have to do that illegal thing we have something else for you to do instead because we know you want to get hired by a police agency one day or whatever. Um, So it's there, you know, they're, they're um, open to that, but I think the part harm reduction is something that definitely popped in my head as I was sort of structuring what we were going to talk about today. Cause you're thinking, okay, these are problematic behaviors involving young adults. Where else have we seen this? You know, teen pregnancy, the drug use, the abstinence does not work. And um, so I, 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 as a psychologist, I think that's a beautiful route to go because we have some other areas we can kind of turn to and say, on a large scale, we've seen how this has actually made a big impact in reducing these harmful behaviors. Wow. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm really excited about the idea of testing this and studying mm-hmm. it thoroughly. Um, but I, I, I can tell you that I'm, I'm in a very tough place. Uh, you know, state after state is passing even tougher anti-hazing laws. Um, universities have, you know, really strong policies ag- against it. Everyone is making it not only really hard for um, people to investigate alternatives to just like utter prohibition, but also just harder and harder to study this phenomenon. Like we're, we're trying to clamp down on something we don't quite understand yet. Um, and that's that's a problem unto itself like the and, sorry go ahead i was just going to say and that's something you beautifully outline in your paper is that attempts to repress this phenomenon only make it worse and only like make it more below the surface and harder to address and harder to educate people about that's the whole first part of your paper that is so beautiful about just saying that it's this you drew an analogy to the just say no um mm-hmm. 
which was an utter failure in in the war on drugs, quote unquote. Yeah. 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 I, I, you know, you can find, um, you know, I was talking about the fungibility between ordeals that are dysphoric, but when you read anti-hazing advocates talk about this, they go, oh, you know, why don't don't you replace these ordeals with movie nights? Like, why don't you just go have fun? (laughs) (laughs) How sweet is that? (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's sort of like, you know, the, in, in, in absent education, if you're like, well, instead of having sex, why don't you just hold hands? Yeah. Why don't, why don't you just Watch go out together? There are other yeah. ways to show that you like one another. <laughs> yes. The the sexual need is not being met. So how do you meet the sexual <laughs> need? Is, That's what we need to focus right. on. <laughs> Which to be clear, I'm not saying that people have a perfectly analogous hazing need. I'm right. I'm just saying that in both cases, there is a disconnect be- between like what people are doing and why and mm-hmm. the proposed solution. It's, you know, it doesn't appear as though people think that happy, fun activities scratch the same itch for them that hazing does. And uh, if we want safer alternatives, we have to look for things that also scratch that itch. Yeah. Um, Um, Go ahead. I just wanted to say also, I, you know, this has been going on in the chat because we have some really interesting comments um, being made that there is this concept of power differential as well among people who yes they are technically adults because they've hit the the chronological marker but they are very much driven by organic processes processes and power dynamics power differentials and you know i i went to a small liberal arts college in the south for my undergrad and i wasn't in the greek system but i do remember a couple of the frats and it was like Lord of the flies. I mean, there were people who were in charge and no one dared cross them. And Mm. it's all I could remember, you know, all I could remember thinking was like, how is it appropriate for a 19 year old to have so much power over someone that is just maybe nine to 12 months younger than them? So there's, I I think there's two aspects to your comment as, as I see it. Like one has to do with, just the existence of power differentials itself, like the the idea that there are people inside these organizations that have a sort of miniature version of authoritarian control. And then the other aspect of your comment has to do with pairing that with adolescence, broadly defined, right? Maybe the, uh, the, lack of judgment or at least the decrement in judgment that we might associate with people that are not fully, that are not fully mature. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think that those concerns, especially in the context of hazing are fully legitimate. Like I, I, I share them. I think that where, where the reason why I've sort of arrived at this point is not because I think it will stop all harms. It's because I think it's the only tool we have left. Yeah, that makes sense. But but I, I, I so I, I just want to be clear though that I'm validating what you're you're saying. There there are real concerns. It it doesn't just go away because we give them for for state training or, or we we fungible these ordeals or what what have you like there are things that could still go wrong. Uh, and, right. and to a certain extent, I, I think we have to live with that possibility. Like we have to live with the fact that people want to do these things for better or for worse. Would there be any advantage to educating parents? Like, yeah. you know, information for parents. If you're thinking of sending your kid here, this is a reality of what goes on. How how would that can you, how would you operationalize that, or do you have ideas about that? I mean, I, I I do have ideas, but as with embrace and reform, I want to be clear that I'm suggesting studies rather than telling people to to implement this. I think that one of the the issues with past anti hazing advocacy is that people just thought of ideas and started doing them. But you know, one of the, the things that we've learned from past studies of psychological interventions is that 
they're not all neutral to positive. Some of them can be negative, right? Can actually backfire. So we have to be careful in just saying, oh yeah, I'm a researcher and I know about this stuff. So do, do what just popped into my head, right? Um, but in, in terms of parental advice, what I would do is sit down and have the, the safety margin talk, like where, where you go, look, if these guys want you to drink or want you to uh, you know, take a, a different intoxicant, understand that this is how people die, right? And you need to get out of there. Um, now, if you, you might not be able to extricate yourself from a particular situation, maybe it's really intense, but what you can say is, for example, you're on medication that interacts with alcohol or, or what have you. Like you can have a pre-prepared excuse for why you cannot do that. But then afterwards, you ought to leave. That alcohol and substitute in intoxicants are the number one danger here. Now, I, even with that said, if, if I were writing advice for parents, I, I would try to qualify this though. Like there are a handful of deaths on average related to hazing every year, but, but hazing is happening a ton. There's a ton of it. And that's because hazers are really not trying to kill anyone. So what you're seeing is instances of profound negligence, not you know, typical things. Like it isn't as though hazing processes are just you know, shooting out tombstones, right? That's, right? that's not normally what happens. But with respect to the process, like pay attention to alcohol, understand that these, these people that are having you do that don't know your alcohol tolerance. They, they can't dose this accurately to bring you to a point where you're, you're not happy, but you're not dead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's so many factors and thank you for taking the time tonight to highlight how different university fraternities and sororities are from all the other types of hazing that we talked yeah. about in our episode and touched on a little bit tonight, because I think there are so many factors. Like you said, it's not somewhere you're going to earn a paycheck. There's a huge social component. And yes, we are talking about people with not fully formed frontal lobes. You know, there's just so much that makes that unique population so different and has to be related to the fact that that's where we do see the deaths and the lack of judgment and, and things that lead to that. Um, so what's next for you? Where, where do you find your research really taking you at this point? Well, um, so I mentioned that I've got that, that paper that's under review. Right. Um, I'm, I've got another paper that's doing an entirely different analysis on that same data set. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to figure out uh, whether hazing is actually selecting out less committed members, which, as you know, is a common theory. Um, mm-hmm. I have another study uh, that's based on a sample of something like, uh, I think... Don't quote me on this, but because I'm working with with a couple co-authors who who's and this is their sample, um, but it's I think it's based on over ten thousand fraternity and sorority members, oh. and we are testing uh, some of my theoretical ideas about what predicts hazing motivation. So we had them do various surveys, and we have various measures of of things, and you know my particular theory predicts certain relationships, and we're going to see how that goes. And then beyond that, um, I'm going to do more studies that look at, you know, what predicts hazing motivation, but I'm also planning eventually uh, to try to get a grant to study the hormonal foundations of of hazing, like the role of testosterone and cortisol uh, and, and to what extent those things mediate or regulate hazing behaviors. Fantastic. Well, Please let us know. I know that can be quite a process and takes time, but let us know when some of those are done. We'd love to have you come back and talk about the outcomes um, of those papers. So thank you. We can't thank you enough for your time. I mean, literally. We and for, re- for reaching like out all of, of this questions. time. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> thank yes. you so much for, for having me. Also, I hope I didn't talk over you, you guys this whole time. I was just like talking and talking and talking. So I sincerely appreciate being here. Uh, I think you guys are doing a great job. Oh, thank Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Aldo, for being here. We appreciate your time. We 
sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usry of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. Please check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on Get Vocal entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential wherever you get your audio so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast so you can be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join us next time on LA Not So Confidential. Confidential.